electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan, and tonight, risk of extinction. Hundreds of top tech minds sound a new alarm on AI. Is an investing frenzy overlooking the risks? Not on target. The embattled retailer losing $12 billion in value in the last few weeks. And now another major store may be in the crosshairs. Can American business really ditch China? It may not be as daunting a challenge as you think. China Hawk Kyle Bass is here to lay it out. Oil prices down again. Could OPEC have a surprise of its sleeve this weekend? And a nightmare on the high seas. Look at that. Brutal wave slamming a packed Carnival cruise ship. One of the passengers who made it through the ordeal can join us. All that and much more. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. All right, welcome everybody and good evening here. Good afternoon out west. We're going to get to all those stories in the next hour. But first up today on Last Call, the debt ceiling deal facing its first hurdle. A key house committee could decide the future of the deal struck over the weekend. All this as America comes closer to next week's default deadline. Eamon Javers live in Washington with the very latest on where we stand right now. Eamon. Hey there, Brian. Well, a key moment in this evening's House Rules Committee meeting came as one of the most closely watched Republican holdouts revealed which way he planned to vote. I want to see the rule. It's not printed yet. It's not been read. But I uh, anticipate voting for this rule. And for pe- when people want to express their ideology, the, the floor of the House on the actual final passage of the bill is the place to do that. Now, there's been a lot of discontent among the most conservative members of the House Freedom Caucus about this debt deal. So the signal sent there by Congressman Massey is reassuring to Republican leadership. Some of the unhappy members have talked about the possibility of even forcing uh, Speaker McCarthy out of the speakership, forcing uh, him to defend the deal a short time ago. Here's what he said. How are we outsmarted? The largest cut in the history of Congress, the biggest ability to pull money back. We got um, work requirements for welfare, where the Democrats said was a red line. We've got um, NEPA reform for the first time in 40 years. We took a Trump executive order for PAYGO against the administration. Now, the deal hashed out between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy includes five main elements. Those are caps on discretionary spending, permitting reform for infrastructure projects, clawbacks of unused pandemic funds, work requirements for federal aid programs, and a debt ceiling hike to January of 2025. Now, later this evening, the entire House Republican conference is going to meet on Capitol Hill, and that's going to give McCarthy a chance to tamp down some more of that grumbling from his colleagues. We'll see 
what this vote looks like when it gets to the floor, but some encouraging signs, at least from McCarthy's perspective tonight, Brian. Back over to you. Yeah, we'll see. Eamon Javers, thank you very much. And we will get back to Eamon if we get any new developments. All right, in the meantime, AI poses an existential threat to humanity? That is according to an open letter signed by hundreds of artificial intelligence scientists and tech executives. In one sentence, the statement reads, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks like pandemics and nuclear war. Basically, the Terminator is happening. The open letter was signed by more than 350 people, including chat GPT creator and open AI CEO Sam Altman. It is the latest example of a growing chorus of alarms raised by the very people who are creating and rolling out the technology. But is it merited? Reaction. Let's bring in Chairman, Founder, and CEO of Operation Hope, John Hope Bryant, who is very close to Sam Altman, and Tusk Ventures co-founder and CEO Bradley Tusk. Um, Bradley, welcome. John, welcome. Bradley, this is not, uh, you know, one fringe group coming out with some tinfoil hat letter. These are some of the leading tech execs, yeah. scientists, big thinkers in the world, in the industry. Are they right? Look, these are serious people and real people, and so you have to take what they say seriously. And yes, could AI be an existential risk at the same level of climate change or a pandemic or nuclear weapons? Absolutely. However, the real question is, what's their intent here, right? Because writing a letter, signing it, it gives you cover, it gets you some attention, all great, but in and of itself doesn't achieve anything. If they really, truly want to force the government to deal with this, Next year is a campaign year, presidential, Senate, House, governor, everything you can imagine. They need to make this the top issue of the campaign. If politicians feel like they will be politically punished if they don't deal with it, then they will come up with a plan to deal with it and they will act on it. And if it's just a press hit and a letter to get people cover, then it's not going to amount to much about it. You know, John, I hear what Bradley's saying, John. I just don't know if regulating AI is going to be at the forefront of many voters' minds next year. When you think about the fact that, you know, I, you know, I had Sam uh, Altman um, with us in Atlanta right after he left the White House. So I think it's really indicative that he, we were not on his schedule at all. And he called me and woke me up in the middle of the night about a week before and said, John, is there any way we can come to Atlanta and have a conversation with some of the real thought leadership in black and brown America after I left the White House? That's the most important conversation I need to have. And I need to listen and not just talk. And I think he learned a lot that day. And it informed, I think, his original gut feeling that he's got both EQ and IQ. Um, I do believe that he's serious. I do believe it's a threat. And it's not just a threat of the computer thinking for itself, which is a whole nother conversation. It's 90 million jobs, poof, by 2030. And it, I'm sorry, 90 million jobs will be created, but about that same amount will be uh, between 45 million and 90 million just in the United States. Uh, might actually just go away. And what do you think, Brian, those jobs are going to go away from? It's not just black and brown people in urban America, in uh, in restaurants, fast food restaurants, in uh, service jobs, uh, driving trucks, all the stuff you can think about, but also poor white America, rural America. This is this is going to be a non-racial discriminator uh, uh, of, job of job destruction. It'll be a job creator, but people who've got skills. So we've got to do something in five years, that was done in 50, during, when we moved from the horse and buggy to the automobile. The but I do, John, I hear, I hear you. I just, I do, back to you, John, I do wonder, could AI help 
people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale advance if they use it or get to use it as a tool that would benefit them? I, I couldn't I could see that in some cases. If it, this is the big if, because most of you know, right, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I work for myself, but entrepreneurs are the exception, not the rule. We need a massive uptick of small business owners. That's a good thing. But most people work for somebody else. This only helps the underserved community, black and brown, urban and white rural, if they get retrained, if they get reskilled, if they're, 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 they're not there, they can then mm-hmm. use, use their skills to then command the new AI functioned jobs, which are going to get created on the exact back end of this to, to sort of lead the robotics, uh, to, to lead the, the, the coding, uh, to lead the new uh, factories that will require computer skills. I think every school in America needs to have a computer class before high school and a financial literacy class. Yeah. I mean, that's the new army should be in high school and it shouldn't be by military. It should be from the, the, the shoulders up, not the neck down. It should be. It, this is what this is the one thing that China did right. I admire and I think they're cheating at capitalism is they took all their kids and sent them to America <laughs> to be trained in engineering, math and economics and business. I over answered your question, but I think it only works if we work. Bradley, how do we get ahead of this? You're an early investor. You're an early investor in companies like Uber. We saw what Uber did to the taxi industry in many cities, or at least tried to do. How do we get ahead of this? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a few different ways to look at it. So John's absolutely right. Uh, AI definitely does pose a a real threat to a lot of low-skill, low-income workers. And so I think getting out ahead of it right now, like John said, and that's why I think this could be, you know, a campaign issue, which is, how are we going to save those jobs? Or what are we going to replace them with? How are we going to give people the right skills so they compete in a world with AI? Um, those are all things that we can do if we're actually thoughtful for once and got ahead of something for once. We tend to have a government that's very reactive. We're just chasing the last story, the last tweet, you know, the last post, whatever it is. But we know what's coming. This is coming, and it's both good and bad, right? So if you are someone like John said in rural America or inner city. It can make our schools better. It can make our hospitals better. It can make our government serve people. So there's a lot of upside, but there's also a lot of risk. And this is now the time before all the bad things happen to get ahead of it and say, how do we regulate this thing? So the letter that you kind of opened the segment with was about nuclear extinction. And that is a valid risk. Probably an even more valid risk might be um, major shift within the economy Mm -hmm. and being displaced. So now is the time to act on. Yeah, hey, Brian. Uh, yeah, go quickly, John, please. Yeah, this I've never had a more important meeting than I had at Clark Atlanta University with Sam Altman in the last 30 years. I mean, it was absolutely mind altering, mind shifting. And I don't think people really understand how transformational, transformational this will be. I'll give you one quick example. Whether you're a, a rural doctor in rural Pennsylvania or wherever, or Arkansas, or whether you're in Africa, your healthcare is going to get better because every doctor now has a AI assistant next to them giving them the best knowledge in the world. The negative is the three to 10 assistants are gone in that medical office. Yeah. I mean, it almost feels like we're already well behind the curve. So hopefully this letter, this show maybe too, getting the getting it some attention at the highest level. Congress tends to be slow on this. We'll find out this time. John Bradley, a real pleasure, both of you. Thank you. All right, in the meantime, as the graphic says, time for your daily RBI because something is going on which is really random but interesting in the markets and maybe a little scary at the same time. 
At one point today, there were five companies in the American stock market valued at more than $1 trillion. Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and NVIDIA. NVIDIA popped above that vaunted mark earlier in the session before closing just below it. And while it's great to have $5 trillion companies, there is one thing that you may want to pay attention to, and that is these companies are not just part of the stock market. In many ways, they are the stock market. Here's why. Those five companies are worth a full one-fourth of the entire value of the U.S. stock market. Remember, there are thousands of stocks listed in the United States, but just these five companies are worth 25% of the market. That's right. Five companies out of maybe, call it 4,000 publicly traded stocks, give or take, that effectively control one out of every $4 in the market. It's amazing. It's something to be proud of, that we've got the world's biggest companies. It's also great for stocks and your money when these companies go up in value, because if they go up, the entire market tends to go up. They are the donkey pulling the cart, and the cart is filled with thousands of other stocks. But let's keep those donkeys healthy, because if these five behemoths go down, what are the odds with their weight and their size that the entire market also doesn't go down with it? Probably pretty small. So even if you don't own any of these companies or care about these companies, you may want to keep rooting for these companies and rooting for them to go up because it is going to pull the entire market with it. We have never seen this kind of outsized power in so few stocks in the market. Random and hopefully interesting. All right, up next. Target shares bleeding red and now another retailer maybe in the boycott crosshairs. That name ahead. Can American business really ditch China or are we just too dependent on their cheap labor, on the supply chains, on whatever to make any real changes? Kyle Bass, Jeff Sonnefeld wrote about it today and they are here with you next. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, time now for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories that you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning. North Korea has launched what is being called a space vehicle. And according to South Korea's military, the event triggering alerts in South Korea and Japan's Okinawa region. South Korean media says the space vehicle, whatever that is, disappeared from radar. The company's military is analyzing whether it exploded or crashed in midair or something else. 
North Korea had previously warned of the launch. Experts believe it may be North Korea's attempt at its first military spy satellite. Wow. All right, in the meantime, another major retailer is getting caught in the culture wars. Kohl's stock fell more than 5% today. After some customers criticized the store's Pride Month merchandise. Videos with the hashtag Boycott Kohl's had a couple hundred thousand views on TikTok. Move comes after Target stock dropped more than 3% today as it continues to face some backlash over merchandise. Target has lost more than $12 billion in market value over the past two weeks. But context here, context. Remember that? Context is important. Number one, Target shares were falling well before any customer uproar. Since the beginning of the year, selling just accelerated recently. Also, These are not the only retailers to sell Pride-themed products. Walmart, JCPenney, The Gap, many more have sold merchandise for years without issue. So is it the company, the customers, the products? What is it? Let's ask Telsey Advisory Group Senior Managing Director Joe Feldman. He covers Target, does not cover Kohl's. But Joe, uh, welcome on. Um, Without having to dig into the culture wars themselves, is there any indication you are seeing that store traffic at Target's is actually down. We've not seen traffic down yet. Uh, as of the most recent quarter, which they just reported a week ago, they did have traffic, positive traffic uh, into the stores. And I think they're among the few retailers with Walmart and Costco and a handful of others that are actually generating positive traffic, which implies that you know the customer still likes going to shop there. They're seeking value in this environment. They're cash-strapped, and they're trying to find ways to save money. They're focused on food and consumables, and that's driving them to the stores. And uh, I know the stock's been off. Uh, you know, look, they, they, their guidance for the second quarter was a little bit softer. I know there's this noise now with, um, with Pride Month, which is really unfortunate to see, quite honestly. But, um, you know, I do think that there's a lot of opportunity in a stock like uh, Target for the longer term, if you look at it, and the margin recovery story that they have compared to a year ago. The stock's lost $21 billion in value since its highs earlier this year. As we pointed out, 12 and a half of that or so has been in the last couple of weeks. You can see Target stock was on a downslide. That slide accelerated, presumably because of all this brouhaha. You're saying no sign of decelerating traffic. That would seem to be a great opportunity if Target can manage to get through this. Do you have any advice for Target's management? Because clearly they're, they're caught up in something. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's just really hard when you're caught up in something like this. And, you know, we, we saw what happened at Budweiser when they tried to do something, um, you know, to promote the LGBT community. And it didn't work uh, as well as they had hoped. I actually think, you know, Target kind of got themselves caught because there's people on both sides of this. And there's a large community of people that like that product and did not want to see it leave. And the truth is, if you go to Target's website right now, if you go to Target stores, you'll still see a lot of the product on the shelf or online. And so they're still there. They're still supportive of the community. I think they just need to kind of get through this. They're caught up in this culture war right now, like a lot of other things in this country. I think most people generally are okay with what's going on. It's just the fringes that are kind of forcing, uh, you know, everybody in the middle to kind of be awake and more aware of what's going on as well. Yeah, and Kohl's maybe, uh, which you do not cover, Kohl's maybe caught up in it a bit and seeing that stock get hit as well. Yeah. I tell you, PR people, IR people, they're all having meetings late nights these days trying to figure out what do we do if something happens. Appreciate it, Joe. Thank yeah. you. 
All right, Stella Hit here in last call. Elon Musk's business blitz in China. He loves their electric car market, but should other American companies really still be dancing to China's tune? Or are we too dependent to make any real changes? Plus, check out this travel nightmare. A harrowing storm wreaking havoc on a Carnival cruise ship. One of the passengers on the ship will join us coming up. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, welcome back. We are taking a closer look at China here on Last Call. And this week, the country is a major focus for the business world. Tesla CEO Elon Musk, you might have heard of him, meeting with the Chinese foreign minister earlier today. Move comes as China is pushing its investments in foreign businesses and shares of Tesla closed up about 4% today following that meeting. Tomorrow, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon will be speaking at the bank's China summit in Shanghai, marking his first visit to the nation since the pandemic. Business seems to be booming in China, even as tensions between Biden and Beijing appear to still be high. So how risky is it for American companies to double down on doing business with China? And is there any way we can actually get out of our dependence on China, given its supply chain and really endless supply of lower cost labor? Your next guests are the co-authors of a new piece in Fortune out today called Corporations Still Have to Perform China's Dance, but not if the music stops. Joining us now is Heyman Capital Management founder Kyle Bass and Yale School of Management Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies, Jeff Sonnenfeld. Kyle, that I think the title of your piece and Jeff's piece referred to a 2006 comment from the then CEO of Citigroup talking about, well, the music is still playing, so we're going to keep dancing, referring to subprime and housing still going. Do you think the music, to quote the movie Margin Call, so to speak, is about to stop or slow? Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, nice to see you, Brian, and great to be on here with with uh, Jeffrey. Um, you know, I as we've talked in the past, I think that uh, you know there is a non-zero chance of a kinetic conflict with China. We've been fighting three wars with China for the last fifteen years. We've been fighting an economic war. We've been fighting a data slash propaganda war, and we've been uh, also fighting a cyber war. Um, and Brian, now it looks like we may get into the kinetic realm with Xi's belligerence in the South China Sea and his views on Taiwan. So I think it's it's very what Jeff and I are trying to say here is it's going to be very responsible for corporate CEOs, C-suites and the boards to start really understanding how much risk they have in the supply chain, how much risk they have in revenue and how much risk they have in PP&E in China. Well, is there any way, Jeff, to quantify the level of risk? Yeah, I think it's. Uh, and by the way, I congratulate uh, uh, Kyle because uh, usually I think you're the hardest working person on television, Brian. But in this case, Kyle, I think is up at two thirty in the morning somewhere in Europe to join this call. So thank you, Kyle. But I, I think the uh, 
you guys had a great uh, program last week, a great uh, a CEO program where I think it was Sarah Eisen who interviewed John Donahue of of Nike, and he talked about how yeah there are risks, but we just have to manage the contingencies for those risks. Well, those contingencies mean that you've got to prepare certain options. In pharmaceuticals and electronics, it's very hard to get out. The ecosphere has a, a great deal of dependence there, especially with, say, uh, antibiotics. It's like 90 percent but uh, of uh, produced in China. However, there are other industries. Like you take a look at the Fortune 500 firms, there are only, I don't know, two or three of them that are, have more than 50 percent of their sales there, and not even 5 percent have more than 20 percent of their sales coming from China. We're way less dependent than people think, and it's a, it's a, it's a manageable problem if we take a look at uh, a, a, a ways where you think about those who pull out completely, mm. which is perhaps like uh, that have been forced by the government, some who, who are, are quietly withdrawing but aren't pulling out completely, and some that are digging in. Well, you know, here's the dirty secret about about the trade relationship, Kyle. And I'm going to be directly correct. Don't quote me on the numbers. We don't sell that much to China. We sell a lot of Teslas. GM sells a lot of Buicks. Nike sells a lot of shoes. But that's pretty much it. If you look at the trade data, it's about the GDP of Delaware. A lot of it is like scrap metal and scrap parts and things like that. So I don't really care about selling Nikes to China. What I do care about, what our audience should care about, is the fact that what Jeff just said, 90% of key ingredients into our medicines may come from China. We, how do we, how would we ever push back on China when literally our healthcare system may depend on them? Well, Brian, I think it's important to realize that Making uh, pharmaceuticals, making antibiotics is not rocket science. Uh, all we all we need is leadership in D.C. on both sides of the aisle to come up with a plan to reshore our entire uh, pharmaceutical industry. Again, it, it left us with a national security hole. We kind of let that frog boil over time. And uh, the irony that it's all made in Wuhan uh, isn't lost on anyone either. Uh, so I think it's important that we just take the initiative. We need real leadership in D.C., to start really grabbing the bull by the horns here and defining the battle space. We've just figured out that China is no longer just a strategic competitor or a great power competition or whatever you want to call it. They are the enemy of the West. They're, they're, we, are, we have such a deep-seated ideological fundamental disagreement with, with how they govern, how they respect or don't respect human rights. And I don't know where anyone thought this was really going to go, Brian, over time. We hoped that they would democratize and open themselves up and start respecting human rights. But as we all now know, it was a bad bet. Yeah. And it, well, I think as we've learned, and if anybody out there wants to go just read up a little history on Xi Jinping, this probably starts at the top. Guy had a, a really brutal childhood and adolescence. It probably goes into some of the leadership style there. But Jeff, okay, you talk to these guys. You talk to both, both sides, Democrats, Republicans, centrists, whatever it may be. What do we say? Hey, we're just not going to buy anything from China until they clean up their act. I mean, what actual power do we have over China, given they also own so much U.S. debt and could damage the U.S. dollar? 
Well, they don't want to uh, to, uh, to to trash the market of their own debt either. They don't want to run that down. So they certainly don't want to sell out and flood that market. Uh, you know, there was, uh, as you can see from the Ukrainian flag behind me, and Brian, we've talked about this at other times, about the, the withdrawal from Russia, historic withdrawal of 1,100 firms are completely pulled out and a couple hundred others partially pulled out. It's much easier pulling out of Russia. Russia is not a major economic, not even remotely economic superpower. It's not uh, even a top. 15 trading partner for for china there's the world doesn't need anything out of russia believe it or not yeah however china is different uh but as reinhard nabor said uh there that uh and a great prayer attributed to him a, a yale theologian is uh grant us the serenity uh, to accept what we can change uh, grant us the courage to change what we can change and grant us the wisdom to know the yeah. difference there are things that can be done here apple for example with a 90 percent dependence has reduced their supply chain pulling 25 percent out to other parts of asia just quite recently quietly and we see many other firms doing that as we saw the uh, apparel industry that completely yeah. pulled out of xinjiang province yeah and i want to be clear we're talking about the chinese communist government i've been to china a couple times met some amazing people this is this is coming from the top Kyle, I want to address something a little bit different, but it feels like there's something rumbling. We obviously have these spy balloons. We got this hack that Microsoft reported last week. Some of that may have impacted the U.S. Air Force Base on Guam. And you called me a few weeks ago, and I didn't have enough to go with the story. The journal, great reporting by them, got it over the weekend, which is China is actually slowing down their financial information to the West. It's kind of a Bloomberg terminal clone. It's called Wind. And people have been reporting that they're not getting the data feeds from China. In other words, it appears that the Chinese government is blocking certain economic information from getting to Wall Street and other Western investors. You tie all these three, thing, three things together, Kyle, it does appear there's, a, there, there's some sort of test going on. Yeah, well, Brian, thanks. Thanks for bringing this up. First of all, I'll come back to this question in a second. I'd just like to say with with Jeff Sonnenfeld uh, and his team at Yale uh, and Stephen Tian, uh, they've done a yeoman's job of embarrassing corporate CEOs and boards uh, for staying in Russia. And in fact, Jeff and his team did such a good job that he is on the top 10 people uh, that is uh, Putin's least favorite people in the world. And and on his sanctions list. And Stephen is too. I just think that kind of leadership, when you look at where Jeff is at Yale, he's basically running the Leadership Institute. He runs one of the biggest CEO conferences in the world. And Jeff is actually taking leadership in, in his own hands and moving forward here. So I think that's wildly important. Second of all, and I'm glad to be here with him. Second of all, on, on this concept of of the, the kind of uh, dissolution of data we, we know that we had in the past, we had data with low fidelity, but as of just a few weeks ago, Brian, not only not only wind, but the handful of Chinese data aggregators were basically geo-blocked to the West, i.e. no more corporate level data or macro level data from China is to be sent to the West. You can't get it anymore. Research institutions like in the Ivy League schools and, and other big schools in the U.S. are all severed from Chinese corporate macro level data. Just think about the implications of that. And if you were trying to build a financial barometer for when Xi Jinping is going to move kinetically, which I've been working on, uh, all all roads lead to Rome here. And it looks mm. like she is inexorably marching towards a conflict. Let's, I, you know, Kyle, I, I love you, but I hope you're wrong on that. We all do. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, because, the, you know, but, but cutting off economic data and everything else, and it's a big story. Didn't get a lot of play in the journal 
but everybody can go check it out. And I confirmed it. I didn't have enough to go on a couple weeks ago, Kyle. I <laughs> so good, good work on the journal side there. Jeff and Kyle, appreciate it. Kyle, Kyle has been a pioneer on that, too. You're right. Congratulations. Yep. yep. And I did confirm it Thank with you. one of the Ivy League schools, not named Yale, by the way. You guys don't, you guys don't <laughs> yeah. talk a lot. Jeff and Kyle, I appreciate it. Go, everybody go read that article. Kyle, get some sleep. He is in Europe, so it's very, very late. All right. Still ahead. Can the debt ceiling deal still fall apart? Two lawmakers, both sides of the aisle, will join us with their inside take. Next. Washington, we have a deal. Maybe. Despite repeatedly saying he would not negotiate, in the end, the president gave in to some GOP demands, and the GOP, on its part, had to soften some of its harder-line positions. But in the end, the two sides did reach an agreement in principle on the debt ceiling. Now, the deal is actually a bill. It's actually a law, or proposed law, called the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023. Despite the name, it does uncap the debt ceiling until 2025, of course, after the election, it also features things like permitting reform and approval for a new natural gas pipeline in West Virginia. But it is not a done deal yet. It's got to be voted on. And we are likely to see that on the House floor tomorrow night. Should know something by this show tomorrow. But will it pass? There are aspects to the law or proposed law that both sides don't like. And we are going to hear from both sides, including Republican Congressman Ken Buck from Colorado. He has been outspoken in his opposition We'll get to Representative Buck in a moment, but first up, Democratic Congressman from South Carolina, Jim Clyburn. Congressman Clyburn, really appreciate you joining us here on Last Call. Will you vote for the deal? Yes, I will. Thank you very much for having me, and thanks so much for the question. I think our first responsibility here is to the American people. This great country of ours has been through a whole lot with COVID-19. We are beginning to come back from that, and we should not do anything that will disrupt that process. Also, we have always known uh, that most important to the country is maintaining the full faith and credit uh, of the United States. And we must do this for that purpose, if for no other. If we don't, and we see the American people suffering because we could not give up a little bit on either side in order to maintain viability for the whole, we ought not be here. And so I think that though I don't like everything that's in it, I'm sure uh, that there are people on the other side who feel the same way, but that is what compromise is all about. There are some in your party that are going to be or are unhappy, Congressman, about what they perceive as gifts to fossil fuel, some of the permitting reform, Senator Manchin getting his Mountain Valley pipeline in West Virginia, and also the resumption of student loan payments. But it sounds like you can live with those if we just get the debt ceiling issue through. No, there are other things as well. It's not just, the, the, you know, this whole issue here, we must take it as a whole. I can pick apart things that I don't like and things that I particularly like. But you take it as a whole and say, cannot live with this. For instance, we've been talking about able-bodied people work requirements, moving that from 49 up to 54. Yes, 
that is a problem for some people and for me as well. But in exchange for that, we are covering uh, over 100,000 more veterans. We are taking care uh, of people who are homeless. And we're also taking care of those people who have found themselves in, in um, uh, boat, boat in, I used to call them boating homes, uh, but who uh, need to get a footing. And that's what we're trying to do for people who cannot do for themselves. So when you have those kinds of exchanges, uh, or trade-offs you might call them, uh, I can live with it. Congressman James Clyburn of the great state of South Carolina. Congressman Clyburn, we do, and by the way, running a budget of surplus down there in South Carolina. Congressman, we appreciate it. Thank, okay. thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Yes, sir. All right, we are waiting to speak to Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado. He is getting mic'd up now because... Basically, we're going to uh, hear from the Republican side, but we're using the same camera and the same microphone in the same place. So we need a few seconds to what they call in the business vamp. But if you missed the top of the show, remember this deal yet is not just about debt. It also includes what we just talked about. Things like expedited permitting for some energy products, agreement for Joe Manchin to finally complete that Mountain Valley pipeline, and maybe the biggest economic impact of all. The resumption of student loan debt payments. Remember, most loan paybacks have been paused since the pandemic. This bill, if passed, will end that pause, which means tens of millions of borrowers will have to start paying back their loans with the median loan having a monthly payment of $222 and median student loan debt at $19,281. Many fear that could take a bite out of the consumer-led economy, right as things appear to be already slowing down. All right, let's stay on the topic. Joining us from Colorado is Republican Congressman Ken Buck. Congressman Buck, thanks for joining us. Will you vote yes on the deal? I will vote no on this deal. It raises the debt by $4 trillion in the next 18 months. It is something the American people are going to be very upset about. And I uh, join a lot of my Republican colleagues opposing this bill. You think there's a chance that the bill does not pass. No, I think the bill will pass. There's $4 trillion in this bill for Democrats to uh, vote for the bill. Um, I think that uh, Republicans will vote against the bill. There may even be a majority of Republicans who vote against this bill. So, so you will vote against it, but you do expect the bill, the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, to pass? Yeah, I don't think it should be named that, and, and hopefully it won't be named that uh, in the end. But yes, I do think that this debt ceiling bill will pass the House uh, tomorrow evening at some point. Yeah, well, I think we know there's been some creative marketing done with bill names. Let's just put it that way lately. <laughs> Certain things, you know, whatever it might say, maybe will, may not be what's in it. That said, I want to show our viewers, you tweeted out, it was not your cartoon, unless you're a very skilled artist, by the way, and it's a picture of a Trojan horse that's got $4 trillion in debt in the stomach. You've got Speaker McCarthy pulling it in to the House Republicans. So you're kind of going after the House Speaker a little bit here, Congressman. Oh, there's no doubt. He negotiated this deal. Uh, it's a bad deal. And, uh, you know, the, the negotiations were kept very close. Uh, nobody was, was brought in on these negotiations. And, and this is just a bad deal. $35 trillion of debt 
is unsustainable in this country, and, and it's only going to go up from there. We have got to figure out a way to, to deal with our debt, and it's not through these kinds of negotiations. Well, getting no debt ceiling next year because there was a fear that in March of 2024, and we, you might have heard we have this election thing coming up, we've been fighting about it again. Why are you so concerned about debt? Because many will say, guess what? Debt has gone up just as much when the Republicans have control and nobody seemed to care then. Oh, oh, let me tell you something. This is a bipartisan bankruptcy. This is not, I'm not blaming the Democrats. I'm not blaming the Republicans. We put, uh, the Republicans put spending controls on the Obama administration. And as soon as the Trump administration came in, they blew right through those spending controls. I am by no means making this a partisan issue, and nor are the American people. The, the fear that American people have is that we're spending too much money, we're incurring too much debt. They're not blaming one side or the other. They want to throw everybody out of office. Strong words. A lot of people out there probably agree. Ken Buck. Republican of Congress, uh, Colorado. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right, coming up, the Theranos saga coming to a close as its founder reports to prison. There she is. We'll talk about it next. Welcome back. We've got a little sully side up. Good news on gasoline prices. Oil fell again, down over 4%. Back below 70 bucks a barrel. It's on a few things like continued strong flows from Russia, as well as confusion about what may happen at this weekend's OPEC meeting. They are meeting on Saturday and Sunday. Over the past year, oil prices have dropped nearly 40%. And you have, hopefully, hopefully many of you have reaped the benefit. The average price of a gallon of gas has dropped just over a dollar in the past year. But is OPEC preparing to try to reverse all that with maybe Another cut when they meet this weekend in Vienna. Joining us now to add further insight, of course, somebody that's forgotten more about OPEC than most of us have ever known, and that is Lee Croft, RBC Capital Markets Managing Director, Global Head of Commodity Strategy, CNBC contributor, ready to get on a plane for Vienna, where I'm not sure I'll join you. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, don't. We'll get into that. We'll talk about it. But first off, do you expect them to make another cut? They just announced the surprise cut on April 2nd, and that still has to be complied with. Right. So we're just getting the effects of the surprise April cut. But we are going in person for only the second time since the pandemic. And so whenever they meet in person, there's always the possibility of additional output action on the table. So I don't think we can completely rule out that we could potentially get a deeper cut. Now, the question is, you know, do they stay the course? Some people in the market are speculating that the Saudis are so upset with the Russians that they might increase production. I don't believe that's the case, but there are a whole host of theories swirling around as we head to Vienna. What, what is the theory behind the, if you are a believer that, that Saudi Arabia is irritated with Putin or Alexander Novak, their energy minister, what would be the thesis behind that view? The thesis behind that view is essentially that the Russians have been discounting their oil, pushing it into key Asian markets, and that you have Saudi Arabia and other Gulf producers losing market access, and that the Russians have not been fully compliant with the OPEC agreements. Now, I don't think that is the case. I don't think there is any desire to return to that March 2020 battle for market share between Russia and Saudi Arabia. But that is one theory in circulation at the moment. Again, I think the two options that are really on the table are a deeper cut or staying the course with a view that they've done enough 
And if they need to tweak it, they can tweak it in July or, you know, another month going forward. Because they are meeting again in person in July, which is where I probably will be seeing you <gasps> because they've, they've still got to have these quotas. Right. And we just don't know right. what com what countries are abiding by or could even abide by the quotas, how much they're al sort of allowed or agree to produce. I mean, there's a whole host of OPEC producers, Brian, as you know, that are basically struggling to actually meet their quotas because of, you know, production issues. There's some countries like Iraq that have a significant pipeline that has been off now for nearly two months. And so I do think there are a number of factors that OPEC could say, you know what, let's take a pause, assess the situation, and we'll be back in July. Maybe we can do more of that. But again, I don't think a cut is off the table given where prices are, given the sort of worries out in the market. So again, I think the options are cut or stay the course. I don't think we're going to see a return to market share anytime soon. Yeah, and and uh, they seem to not be concerned about rising prices. And I think that the Saudi Arabia, they got it right in terms of, of where price direction might have been. Maybe I'll see, maybe I won't. Either I'm sure I'll see you on the TV. Halima Croft, thank you, as always. And hopefully we'll see you in person in Vienna. Well, in July. By pitch. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. All right. Halima, thank you. All right. In the meantime, Elizabeth Holmes, a disgraced founder of Theranos, is finally learning what life is like behind bars tonight. For more, let's get to CBC's Yasmin Karam. Yasmin. Brian, she was once the darling of Silicon Valley who founded Theranos, claiming it would revolutionize blood testing technology. Tonight, she's an inmate at federal prison camp Bryan in Texas. Holmes surrendered this afternoon after months and months of delays and appeals to a prison only 100 miles outside where she grew up in Houston, a prison sometimes referred to as Club Fed. Real Housewife star Jen Shaw is currently serving her fraud sentence at the same facility. That said, for the next decade, Holmes is not going to be living with any privacy. She'll be waking up at 6 a.m., sharing a prison cell with several other women, She'll be told when she can eat, when she can shower, when she can sleep. No more black turtlenecks. Inmates wear a khaki uniform. And her family, including her two very young children, can only visit on weekends and holidays. It's a far cry from the lavish life she lived out here in California. During her trial, she was living on the grounds of a $140 million estate. Now, Holmes is still fighting to overturn her verdict in the Court of Appeals. Today is really the culmination of a trial that founded Holmes guilty of four counts of defrauding investors. She's ultimately on the hook for $450 million. Now both Holmes and her ex-boyfriend and top executive Sonny Balwani have been ordered to pay that amount in restitution to the investors impacted by her failed startup. It, may, it might take some time before these investors see any of that money return. For now, Brian Holmes will only be making 12 to 40 cents a day doing typical prison tasks like working in the kitchen, being a janitor, mm. or groundskeeping. Wow. Heck of a fall from grace. Read the book Bad Blood. I'm sure you have, but many of our viewers, they should read it. John Kerryu's book documents the whole thing. Yasmin, thank you very much. All right, coming up, an unforgettable voyage in the worst way. A passenger on that carnival cruise ship rocked by the storm off South Carolina will join us next. Talk about a wild ride. A return for the Bahamas turning into a nightmare over the weekend. Carnival Sunshine cruise ship suffering through extremely rough storms. One of the gentlemen that was on that boat, a little scary time there. Joining us is uh, Daniel Taylor. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Sorry for the very quick interview. What was it like on the ship? And would you take another cruise? 
for the first couple of days, it was great. And then it turned into a nightmare Friday night. Um, by Saturday, I was to the point where I didn't want to take another cruise. But when we got back to land, I was like, you know, the the captain got us back safely. So I'm still going to continue cruising. It was just unfortunate to hit that kind of weather. Although I will say this, the, ironically, Carnival met with the hurricane prep team from the government the day before. I don't even know if you know that. A lot of people are saying the ship should have non gone out, should have gone back in. What's your take? I can agree on that. I mean, I don't feel like we should have sailed straight into that storm. We could have detoured. We could have slowed down and let the, the storm system pass and then headed into Charleston and avoided probably most of the weather we hit. But you're okay, and as far as everybody that was with you is, is okay. I saw some of the scenes. Man, that ship was rocking. It was rocking, but I am okay, and everyone that I know that uh, I'm made friends with on the ship is perfectly fine. Well, I'm glad that everybody's okay. It's the most important. And by the way, hey, Daniel, you have a hell of a story. Hey. You're safe, and you got on TV. Dan Taylor, appreciate it. Thank you very much, buddy. <laughs> be well. All right, folks, be well to you as well. Thanks for joining us. We will see you tomorrow. Shark Tank. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.